What do Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman have to do with the Pharisees and the tax collector? This is the Capital City Podcast. All right, so two men walk into a bar. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. No, I'm just kidding. I won't finish that joke. Uh, But when I say that, it cues you up, right? It it cues you up into like, okay, this is a setup. This is a genre I understand. Two men walk into a bar. There's going to be two, three characters and then a joke, right? Uh, When Jesus tells one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, a really short parable, he's doing the same thing, but over time we lose that he's doing a genre cue, that he's doing a setup. So he, Luke even tells us this, he says, uh, um, in Luke 18, he says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then Jesus starts by saying, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, just like we would say the two men walk into a bar joke, this two men walk up to a temple was a setup. And normally it was a Pharisee who was sort of the religious leader at the time, a very respected leader. You'd have the Pharisee on one end of this equation and then somebody else on the other. And normally the Pharisee always came out looking like the good guy, like the hero and the champion. It's sort of your classic good guy story. Everyone who's hearing this is expecting, instead of the joke, they're expecting like a moral tale. And the Pharisee is going to like own the day and show whatever wicked sinner how bad they are and like bring the wrath of God on them. And then the Pharisee is going to win the day. That's the genre. Of course, we've lost that over time, and we don't realize that he's bringing that up kind of as a a built-in story. So everyone's expecting the the Pharisee to be the hero and this tax collector to be pure evil. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I won't go into it, but um, just briefly, the reason tax collectors were so hated, like no one has any problem with, you know, someone working for the IRS today. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But in the ancient world, tax collectors basically became very wealthy by ripping off the poor and the lower middle class. They, they were tasked with gathering the taxes for the Roman Empire, and the way that they got wealthy was by overtaxing. So everyone just thought of them as kind of the scum of scum. Imagine someone who was like the slumlord of uh, you know, low-income tenements, and then just through abusing the law was able to get everybody out of there uh, in order to bring in you know, wealthy people and gentrify the whole neighborhood. That's kind of the same feeling that a tax collector had back then. So anyway, uh, Jesus surprises them by telling this story almost in reverse order from what they were expecting. So Jesus tells the story. He says, the Pharisee who goes up to the temple prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The idea is that he's kind of pointing, like even like this tax collector over here. Uh, But instead I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So at the core of this, he's saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And I would say that this one sentence, more than maybe any other in the entire New Testament, carries with it the heart of what man-made religion looks like. God, I thank you that I'm not like those people over there. And it wasn't just an over-the-top example. I think our, our ear is cued now to hear the pride in that story, but this was actually a common Jewish prayer at the time. Uh, One of the most common Jewish prayers in the morning liturgy was, God, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile, that you have not made me a tax collector, and that you have not made me a woman. I kid you not. That is the opening, that's one of the openings to the Jewish liturgy, uh, the the sort of the, what you call the Orthodox Jewish liturgy in Jesus' time. Uh, So it's a very common attitude to say, yeah, right, right. Uh, it's a very common attitude to say things like this, Uh, I I thank you that you have not made me like other people. Uh, And I don't know if, if you guys have as well, but haven't you heard this kind of 
this spirit, this emotion come out in your own, you know, friends, relatives, even in your own heart, like you've heard this before. Like, maybe you've, maybe you've caught yourself thinking like this as well. But anyway, let's, let's, let's move on to the story. Um, Jesus then says, um, so at this point, we're all, we all are aware of the pride there, but the common listener is still waiting for the Pharisee to be the hero. And then Jesus says, but the tax collector standing far off, so uh, he's He's, uh, he's standing far off from the temple because tax collectors were so dirty, sort of so uh, disrespected in that time that they defiled anything they touched. They lived in a holiness, purity culture. So a normal Jew would not let you into their home if you were a tax collector because then they would have to go through purification rituals just to make the home clean again for their, you know, their, their religion. Uh, and they weren't allowed to go in the temple. They weren't even allowed to go near it because of how unclean they were you know, presumed to be. So here this tax collector is standing far off because he's afraid. He, he's, he feels so dirty that he doesn't even want to go near God's temple. It says he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast or he beat his chest. It's a symbol of repentance in an ancient Jewish culture. So he beats his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I would say that the two, like, main core, the, the, the core prayer of each person uh, has such a, it says so much, right? Like the Pharisee says, God, thank you that you didn't make me like those other people. But here the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that might be, I think, the truest statement. What is, what, is, what is a core statement of what it means to actually pursue God rightly and honestly? Is God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As a, as a little challenge, this isn't the application or anything of this sermon, but as a challenge, try waking up every day for the next week and letting that be the first thing that comes through your actual lips or just your sort of mental dialogue that's always going on. Try waking up and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and having that be the, the bookend that starts your day. So Jesus then surprises the audience because they're still expecting the Pharisee to be the hero and they're expecting the tax collector to say, you know, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, and then God says, no, you know, and does whatever. And then the Pharisee wins the day. Uh, but instead, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Can you imagine the surprise? Here the hero is claiming that he is just, and he's way more holy than all the people hearing this story. They, they look at the Pharisee and they're thinking, man, this guy has got it figured out. He is super religious and he's, he ticks all the boxes, you know, he crosses all the T's and dots all the I's. And here Jesus is saying that that man is not just. He's not right, he's not justified before God. Um, but this tax collector, this lowly person that the, the listeners of this story, they wouldn't even allow him in their homes. Somehow this tax collector was justified before God. And they're thinking, you know, how? This, this, this Pharisee has spent his life studying the scriptures. How could he not be the just one? And what Jesus is getting at is that he may have spent his life studying the scriptures, but he had actually missed the heart of who God is. And the tax collector knew something that the Pharisee didn't. He actually knew who God was, and he knew who he was as a tax collector. He knew who he was and he knew where he stood in relation to God. If you ever want to score any points with like a theological geek, just say that the tax collector had a, uh, a better Christian anthropology, right? This idea of like he knew who God was and he knew who he was and how, his, how, how he stood in relation to God. That's just a, a bonus point that you can, you can take out in a theological conversation. Um, the tax collector brought a true offering to God, which is repentance, which is God, which is what God wants. You know, I don't know if you notice this, that the 
you know, the, the Pharisee is busy trying to earn God's favor. And what are the things that he mentions in order to earn God's favor? He says he fasts twice a week and that he, uh, he tithes a tenth of what he gets. And if you read the Old Testament, you might find those things four or five times total in the Old Testament. But it's kind of a tertiary concern. And I think that's the heart of human religion is to kind of find and pick a couple random things in your, your, your religious belief that you want to elevate to be the thing. And then you base all your righteousness on those things. So fasting is good. Tithing, giving a tenth of what you earn is good. But the Pharisee has, 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 risen, has raised that, is that how I say that? To like the be-all, end-all of his righteousness. Um, so here he is trying to buy his favor, to earn his favor, his, his favor with God. But the tax collector knows from the get-go that he cannot. Uh, he is a sinner and he will not earn God's favor by his own deeds. But he says this true thing, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So when you hear this story, maybe I shouldn't ask this first, but the question I have here is, so which of these characters, the Pharisee or the tax collector, feels more like you, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's a, maybe too bold of a question to ask right away. Maybe an easier question to start with is, uh, do you know anyone that reminds you of the tax collector or the Pharisee? Um, do, you know, do you know anybody, and don't name names, but just think in your head, Everyone's thinking of their Facebook walls right now, uh, their newsfeed or whatever. Um, do you know anyone who says something like, God, I thank you that I'm not like that person, or who acts as if they think like that? What verbiage might you hear that in today? But people are pretty smart. They, don't, they wouldn't directly say that a lot of times because they're like, oh, that sounds prideful. But they'll say it in kind of couched and, and corner ways. So here's a little list. Somebody told me once that one of my uh, abilities as a pastor is to be an equal opportunity offender. Uh, so I, I offend people from all walks of life, you know, wherever you define yourself on any sort of spectrum. And I thought, well, I, I think that's a good thing. They meant it as a compliment, you know, that I can sort of challenge the whole, the whole crowd. So I, I wrote a list here of things that I've actually heard or, you know, read on social media or just sort of the vibe of different conversations that I've so these are some things that I, that I hear that always remind me of the Pharisee saying, thank you that I'm not like those people. God, I thank you. Well, it, they might not always say, God, I thank you, but that's how I'm going to be starting all these. So, God, I thank you that I'm not like those God-forsaken Muslims. I thank you that I'm not like those liberals. I thank you that I'm not like those Trumpy types. I thank you that I'm not like those Fox News types or MSNBC crazies, right? We've heard, we've heard these conversations, right? Uh, I thank you that I'm not like those fatherless people. I thank you that I'm not like those border crossers. I thank you that I'm not like the Pentecostals. <laughs> I may have thought that a time or two in my own life and then been very convicted. Uh, <laughs> I thank you that I'm not like those liber liberal arts and humanities fools who are now debt-ridden. I thank you that, that I'm not like those gender and identity warriors. I thank you that I'm not like one of those Wall Street swindlers. So here's a list that I think equally attacks people on many different walks of life, depending on how they see things. Uh, but whether you're rich or poor or right or left, if you, if you lean toward being a moralist or a libertine, uh, this is not the behavior that Jesus commends. And, and in fact, he condemns it very specifically, this behavior of the Pharisee. And even though it's exactly what Jesus preaches against, and like half of his parables seem to be hitting on this point, yet I find that it's an attitude that tends to thrive in, well, really all human religion, all human faith, uh, but it tends to thrive, I think, in Christianity. You, you always have these reformations, these crazy young generations that are ready to change the world, and then, um, you know, then the fire settles, it kind of cools a little bit, and they reach people 
or they have their own children, and then those children have more children. And soon enough, by the third generation, whether of converts or of their own children, you kind of have this calcified human religion. And sociologists talk about this. It happened with the Reformation. It happened with uh, different uh, parts of the early church. You see this thing happen after a few generations. There's something about the human condition to calcify and to turn things into legalistic rules rather than remembering the heart of their faith. And I just, I find it interesting that we're sinners even in our pursuit of God, that we're transgressors even as we're trying to know God. And uh, what's, what's strange to me is um, we always find pride ugly in others when we see it, but for some reason it's easy to kind of like, kind of go under the radar and, and nurse our own pride even while we're finding it, while we're finding it ugly in others. Um, C.S. Lewis once wrote that pride is the only sin so ugly that it refuses to even be shared with other people, right? So almost all other sin wants to be like, had in community, right? So think of like drunken revelry, slander, gossip. All these sins work better when there are other people around to do the same. It's like they can all build on one another. But pride is so selfish that it refuses to even be shared. Like prideful people really hate other prideful people. Like so we all are bothered by pride, but if you happen to struggle with pride, you really can't stand other people that are prideful because you don't even want to share. You want all the pride just for yourself. Um, if you grew up, I don't know if you got my email. I think MailChimp garbled it this morning, but uh, I, I, I shared that I'd be talking a little bit about Michael Jordan tonight, which is weird because I'm not a basketball fan at all. Rick, did you see that by chance? Yeah. So uh, if you grew up partly or mostly in the 90s, you'll remember... Michael Jordan, who was like the hero, right? He was a hero to a lot of us. I wasn't even a fan of basketball, but I still somehow knew a lot of his exploits. I knew his character, or I thought I did. Uh, he's argued by, by many to be uh, one of the best competitors of any sport possibly ever. Definitely, you know, the best or second best basketball player of all time. Uh, highest scoring average, 10% uh, more points in every single game than Le LeBron James. All these sort of, you know, this kind of a star character. Um, and he was a hero to me growing up and to many of us growing up. And all the quotes that got recycled about him made him seem like he was a humble guy. I don't know if you've ever heard this quote. I don't even have it here, but it's something about like how many thousands of shots he missed and how many times it came down to the buzzer and everyone was counting on him to make the buzzer shot, but he missed like 300 times, you know, over the course of his career. So many misses, so many fails, and that he just kept trying and that's how he succeeded. And uh, you hear that enough and you think, oh, this Michael Jordan character must be pretty humble. And uh, this aura, I think, covered him. But he had a teammate. Anyone remember his teammate's name with the wild hair? Dennis Rodman, I heard, yeah. So he had a teammate named Dennis Rodman. And he had the, you could say, the complete opposite aura in the popular culture. Uh, just a little bit about him. If, if, he, if Michael Jordan were the best point scorer in the history of basketball, Dennis Rodman was the best rebounder. So he actually was a good player, uh, but he was infamous uh, for his opposite image to Michael Jordan. So he was called crazy. He dyed his hair these crazy colors. He had drug problems. He attempted suicide when he was younger. He would regularly cross-dress, which and this is in the 90s. He was cross-dressing in the 90s, which even today would, would become a, you know, like a media fixation, but this is back then. He had an affair with Madonna. I mean, he was, he was one of those characters. Um, but about 10 years ago, this has become a famous contrast of examples, because I wouldn't normally even have come across this news, but it kind of blew up in like the religious Twitter sphere because of how interesting this was. Uh, did anyone here see Michael Jordan's or Dennis Rodman's Hall of Fame induction video? Anyone? I'm just, I, I thought maybe a couple hands might go up. So they both got inducted into the Hall of Fame within a couple of years of each other. So their videos are more or less close. 
uh, in time. And it's, they've become famous because they're like a case study in opposites, but not for the reason you'd think. You'd think that Michael Jordan would have the beautiful, humble speech and that Dennis Rodman would be this crazy guy, but what made them famous is that they actually flipped places, and Michael Jordan played the Pharisee, and it was one of the ugliest speeches I've ever heard in my whole life, and Dennis Rodman gave one of the most beautiful, humble, you know, empathetic speeches I've ever heard. It was, it was crazy that people, people had pegged them for the character that they wanted to put them in, but they flipped places. So, uh, Michael Jordan, oh man, it was awful. Uh, he spent the whole time talking about how he was the best. He apologized to his own kids for how great he was, that they would never be able to live up to him, that they would never make the kind of difference in the world that he had, and that they'd always be in his shadow. Uh, he called out all the people who had either benched him or cut him from teams, or even his 10th grade coach who wouldn't let him play varsity yet. He was like, all these petty things he kept bringing out and like calling people out. And he was trying to make jokes about it, and at first everyone's kind of laughing, but then it just kept going. People are like, this is kind of not appropriate. Um, so yeah, he criticized all these people. It was kind of, it was shocking. And everyone loved him and respected him, but he went out there and just sort of bled pride all over the stage. But Dennis Rodman was like the tax collector. So people, I mean, people despised him all throughout the 90s. I just, I remember even being a kid and just hearing how crazy this guy was. Um, but he went out there, he stood at the podium when they inducted him into the Hall of Fame, and he was just crying. I mean, he could hardly even bring himself to the mic to talk to the group. Uh, he was so grateful and thankful, and, and he, even, uh, he even joked, he's like, I don't know why you guys even let me in the building, you know, after the career and sort of example that he had set. Uh, but he talked about his past. He talked about being one of, I kid you not, 48 children on his dad's side. His dad had had 48 kids with different women. Uh, he talked about life in the projects. He talked about how he, if it weren't for basketball, he probably would have ended up as a drug dealer. He said he would have been homeless, and then he actually corrected himself and said, well, I was homeless for a while. Um, and he saw the NBA as a completely unmerited gift. And he knew he had, uh, he knew he had worked for it, but he saw it as just a, it was a talent, it was an unmerited gift that was given to him, and with a little work, he made it as far as he did. And it was really a truly beautiful thing to watch this despised man who kind of had the reputation of maybe what the tax collectors did in the ancient world, to watch him be so repentant uh, and humble. And he just stood up there and he, he apologized to the, the community for being a bad father and for being a bad husband and a bad son and said he wanted to work better on this. It was just, it was, it was an amazing thing to see for a kid who grew up in the 90s. Um, so that's, uh, that, was, that was my, like, wow, this is straight out of the Pharisee and the tax collector section, to have this juxtaposition of Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman totally flipping their, their uh, cultural uh, role. So we, under, we understand intuitively that pride is ugly, that to give a speech like Michael Jordan is like, eh, that's not very appropriate, man, but that what Dennis Rodman did was a, a beautiful thing. Now, I don't speak for his character. I don't know what he's gone on to do. Maybe he's not a great example. Uh, I know that he meets with like the leader of North Korea. So don't hear me saying like Dennis Rodman's like a character example or something. But at least the speech was a, a great <laughs> example. Um, and I was just, I was thinking about how, how easy it is to fall into this sort of Michael Jordan like demigod place where we, we try to earn our own righteousness. And then if we have the talent, if we have the ability and actually rise to that, it can be easy to fixate on that and then to focus on our own status. But God didn't make us for that. And our righteousness, our good deeds, don't do anything for God. And this always reminds me, whenever I think about good works, I think about my first cat. 
her name was Midnight. Uh, she was actually an awful cat. She would lunge out at me and like scratch my legs. <laughs> she died or you know, got sent off to some farm when I was five or six, and I still, when I was 17 or 18, I would still walk by the table that she used to hide under and then lunge out at me as a little kid. I would still walk by it and kind of, kind of lean a little bit away from the cat. Anyway, but uh, that's not the story, sorry. Uh, but um, I always thought about this cat because the one nice thing this cat ever did for us is that uh, it was a, like an outside cat and always go and like get in fights with dogs. It was just ridiculous. Anyway, the cat would bring back dead mice. I guess this is, a, is this, have you guys ever had a cat do this? This is something that cats sometimes do. They will go out and hunt and catch a mouse and then they'll bring it back and deposit it on your doorstep. And she would sort of do her thing. Like I forget if she would kind of, uh, meow really loudly or how she let us know that she was outside the door and we'd open the door and she would be kind of sitting there like look you know you could tell that like somehow a cat can be proud you know and this cat was very proud of this these mice they would bring back and it was I don't know if it was a, like a gift or if it was like hey I'm the boss and I'm feeding the family I wasn't sure what the what the thought was but it was clear that regardless of what the end purpose was this cat thought it was doing something quite spectacular for our family. And we all kind of laughed and actually were touched by it, as weird as it was, right? Um, and you, maybe you can see where I'm going with this, but like the mouse, of course, did absolutely nothing for us. If anything, it just created more work. So we're like, well, now we got to figure out what to do with this dead mouse. Um, but in a sense, it was, it was the best kind of a work that a cat could offer, right? Like what's the best thing a cat can do for you is, well, I guess, to bring you a dead mouse. That's about as far as their it's about as far as they can go in serving a human being. Um, and I often think about that with good works. So the Bible says that our righteous deeds that, that we do with the idea of worshiping God, that our righteous deeds are like soiled rags, um, that he desires not sacrifice but a contrite heart. And I often think of the cat, because I would read those verses and be like, yeah, but doesn't God just really like when we do the good stuff? Like, doesn't it kind of like boost his power or like make him feel better? Like, it, that was my, you know, young thought about this. And then when I related it to the cat, it made a lot of sense. Like, me doing a good deed before God, even though he wants me to do that and wants me to be like that, it, it's really just a symbol of my relationship to him, but it, it's no more than a dead mouse on his doorstep. Like, it doesn't do anything for him. He doesn't need that. It doesn't actually help his life. Uh, it, it's just, that's how far we are, and even further from a cat to a human, is like from us to God. But I always, think, I always think about that when I, when I remind myself that a true posture toward God is not some sort of buying your own merit, doing the, you know, fasting or whatever the, the popular sort of symbol of righteousness is for the day, um, but that what he's asking for is a humble spirit, knowing that there's no righteousness in ourselves. Human religion says that we should climb to the top of the ladder, right? To be the most successful, be the most righteous, and then people kind of use that as like a social capital or career capital to then sneer at people around them. But God isn't about this man-made religion, and he knows that we can never reach him with our own actions. I mean, that Pharisee was about one of the most righteous people around, but he could never reach God with his own actions. Our good deeds are instead like this soiled rag or like the, uh, the dead mouse, but what God wants is us, and the only obstacle between God and us that we at least have the power to create, that he gives us the freedom to create, is our pride or our, our hubris, our, our, self, our self-righteousness and then our contempt of others. But God wants us instead to have this humble, contrite heart that the tax collector had. 
You know, King David, uh, after possibly, I mean, he had a lot of moral failures, but after possibly his greatest, or at least the moral failure that is most famous today, uh, he wrote Psalm 51, and he said, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions, create in me a clean heart, and renew a right spirit within me. And this is most likely what the tax collector is quoting. He says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And it's exactly the same, same words. It actually doesn't occur as much as you'd think in the Old Testament. And a lot of people think that the tax collector is probably referring back to David in his gravest moment of sin, seeking repentance, seeking forgiveness from God, that that's what this tax collector is drawing on and saying, like, just like David really screwed up but still was a man of God, I wanna, I've really screwed up and I've extorted all of my brothers and sisters and I want to I make things right. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And this is, the tr- this is a true prayer that God actually desires. Uh, Jesus says in the, in the Gospels, he says that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I, I consider Jesus sometimes as building an army of non-religious elites. You know, he's not just trying to pile all the Pharisees together, but he's really rounding up a ton of sinners to serve him and to worship him. And he showed us this by turning the world upside down with a bunch of fishermen. I mean, he, he dined with prostitutes, with tax collectors, the Pharisees called him a drunkard because of the crew that he, hang out, he hung out with. And what's interesting is that uh, they wouldn't be able to call him that if the people around him weren't living that kind of a lifestyle. Otherwise, people would be like, why are you calling these respectable people drunkards, right? Like, the, the people were all kind of carousing, and that's why they called him a drunkard. And uh, as I reflect on this, I just think that many of us measure our worth, you know, based on how meaningful we are in today's weird, fickle economy. Every decade, you know, it changes. But we measure ourselves based on what other people say is important, right? Like, no one a decade ago knew what, like, Instagram influencers were because that didn't even exist, right? So we're always having this changing metric for what's important, who's famous, whatever. But God doesn't measure us like this. He measures us for this humility, this repentant heart. And so what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of person do you want to be in, in terms of your actions? Do you want to be the Pharisee that's all buttoned up and busy counting up his own righteousness? Or do you want to be like the truly repentant tax collector? The one who knows their sin, who humbles themselves, who beats their own chest, not even worthy to, to, to lift their eyes to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think one of the most harrowing things about this story is that, even though I've been talking about this some... It, it's easy to just blow past it because we talk about this a lot as Protestants, but that we actually can't achieve our own righteousness. I think a lot of people in uh, Capital City Church work hard. I think it's a, it's a temptation. Um, when we see this work in all other aspects of our life, so sometimes when it comes to our own action, we think, well, just work harder, think harder, work longer, work smarter, right, until you achieve your goal. Um, I, I do some writing, so it's kind of like, and just edit that piece one more time before you send it to the editor. And then maybe, then maybe you can consider yourself like this more accomplished writer or whatever. There's that pride that's baked into all of our own, you know, career achievements and accomplishments. But Jesus makes it clear that the Pharisee is not justified. He doesn't just say, like, the tax collector's behavior is preferable. He says the Pharisee walked away not justified. And I think, man, that's the scary part. The judgment day will be a very frightening thing for people of the old religious guard. Um, People who are busy spending their lives counting up their own righteousness and then showing contempt on others, I think standing before Jesus will be uh, a frightening thing. 
but the tax collector will have a different story. And this uh, is the good news. I mean, this is, this is the gospel, right? That we, no matter how diligent we are, we can't earn it, but that, in a sense, Jesus went there for us. And uh, I just think it's so cool that God made a way for us, and his burden is light. You know, the Pharisee spent his whole life under this really heavy burden, right? Uh, but it, we don't need to pursue this full-time pursuit of righteousness and back-breaking work of the Pharisee. Did you know that they memorized the entire Old Testament? They could cite that thing like a computer search engine, like a whole life of study. And here Jesus is like, yep, he's not justified. But that tax collector is. Jesus went to the cross so that if we believe in him and walk away from our former life, we'll be covered by his righteousness if we repent. Uh, Luke 24, 47 says that, uh, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts 3, we read, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. I think it's easy to preach your sins can be forgiven forever, but no one wants to say, repent, therefore, you know, walk away from your, your former life, your former life of sin. But this is the, the desire of God. He desires for us to have this true posture toward him that we could be accepted by his mercy. He wants us to view our life, and I struggle with if I should bring this back up, but he wants us to view our life with God maybe not all that differently than Dennis Rodman. <laughs> No, don't, don't hear me say that. But the, the sort of gratitude that Dennis Rodman had for being able to live the life he did, that sort of that feeling of unmerited you know, mercy and, and, and a gift that he had. So not that he wants us to live like Dennis Rodman, but the idea that he had this sort of like, this is just pure grace. You know, like even all of his mental or physical capabilities, those are just a gift. And like, yeah, he worked hard, but everyone works hard. And, and, and look what he had. Um, that that's, I think, how God wants us to view our life with him. That's just completely unmerited, completely a gift that was thrown on us. And yeah, we have to respond to it. Everyone has to respond to it, but it was just given. Um, Jesus turns the world upside down in that repentant sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors go into God's kingdom before these crazy, privileged, religious, I think of them as like religious Ivy Leaguers, right? Like the people who are born in like the 1% who are spending their whole life just like headed to Harvard. These are like the Pharisees of the New Testament. Uh, but the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before them if they repent. Jesus said that the first will be last and that the last will be first. Our human impulse is to thank God that we're not like others or to be kind of smug if we consider ourselves better than others. We all long to that, you know, idolatrous. Like, I think in our human state, we, we long to be idolatrous like Michael Jordan was about his own ability. But Jesus won't have any of it. All have fallen short of his glory, from the Pharisee to the tax collector, and it's only by his mercy that we stand before him. Uh, I heard once a good friend of mine uh, that I used to work with said, uh, don't let anybody tell you that salvation has nothing to do with works. He said it has everything to do with works, but only the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I just thought like, oh man, that's brilliant. Salvation has everything to do with works, just not your works. Right? Like, so the relationship I had to the cat, right, that was still our cat, had nothing to do with the, the dead mouse. Right? It was just that I chose to have, the, to have that cat, even though it's pretty awful. So it's not a great analogy. But... Uh, <laughs> Our, our relationship to God has nothing to do with whether or not we, we sort of buy our way in with our works. He chooses us, uh, and he likes to see the works, but he chooses us. Uh, let me pray to close our, our time here, a little shorter tonight.
Father, we thank you so much for choosing us that even though the best we can do is a soiled rag or a dead mouse at your doorstep, that you have chosen us, that you've made a way for us to be made right, uh, and that's completely a gift. We pray that uh, just as Dennis Rodman saw that uh, his, his ability was just completely unmerited, that it was just sort of a, a gift that dropped on his doorstep, we pray that we would see your love for us as the same, Lord, that though we need to respond to it, it's completely unmerited, and it's all uh, your grace. We thank you, Lord. Uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of Capital City in the West 7th District of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website at capitalcitystpaul.com.